If you like the show, <laughs> subscribe and leave a review. If you want to get in talk, if you want. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Hello, I'm Harry. And this is A for Effort. The show where we each bring a couple of words, let's say three just for fun, that the other person has no idea about. And they have to guess what they mean, who they are, and why they have my treasure. (laughs) Using a map marked with an X. Yes, we each bring three (laughs) maps, three words, three Xs, and we took all the treasure. Right. So, this week, Mm -hmm. do you want to guess first? Sure, I'll guess first. All right. What's your theme? My theme is goal setting. Ready? Oh, yeah. (laughs) My goal is to get everyone. (laughs) But we will learn whether that is an effective goal in the course of the discussion. By guessing each one. (laughs) Wow. All right. My first term Mm -hmm. is entity theory of intelligence. Entity theory of intelligence. So it's some theory of what intelligence is, or how to gain it, or how to maintain it, or how to lose it. Entity. What is an entity? It is a thing. It could be an organization. It could be a person. It could be an item. But it's something. It's an object, let's say. So <laughs> I honestly have no idea. The entity theory of intelligence. So entity is an object. If you have... <laughs> An entity. Oh man, that's it's just like too big of a hint. <laughs> um, I'm using intelligence because that's how it's brought up in the book, but it it could also apply to other things, like an entity theory of something that you have. It's contrasted with incremental theory. Okay, so here's my guess then: the entity theory of intelligence is that you just kind of have it as an object, versus incremental theory of intelligence, which is you kind of gain it piece by piece. Yeah. Okay. So entity theory is the idea that you have a set amount mm-hmm. of intelligence. Specifically, yep. you have an entity mm-hmm. of intelligence, whereas incremental theory proposes that you can increase your intelligence over time. With goals. It does factor into goal setting mm-hmm. because if you have an entity theory of something, then your goals will probably relate to maximizing your pre-existing potential. Mm-hmm. Whereas incremental theory would encourage goals that are more aspirational. So would incremental theory imply or even assert that there's no finite amount of intelligence? Yeah, essentially. For example, in in math, Mm -hmm. if you have an entity theory of math intelligence, you think that people... You're good or bad. Yes, you're good or you're bad at math. And if you think you're bad at math, you're not likely to feel motivated to use goals to help you improve at math because okay. you think that if you're not good at it, you're just not good at it. Fair. Whereas if you have an incremental theory, mm-hmm. it's it's not, oh, I have I am this good at this thing and that is as good as I can ever be. Yes. It's I can improve. Mm. And then I think you're more motivated to use goal setting to help you get better at math in this example. Cool. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Nice. Do you want to summarize? Yes. The entity theory of intelligence posits that intelligence or other skills or attributes are kind of come within you in a set amount that you have, 
which is kind of contrasted against an incrementalist theory of intelligence in which you can build it up to an infinite degree. Yes. Yes. You're either good or bad at math versus I can be as good as at math as uh, however hard I work at it. Yes, exactly. Nice. School. Sick. Sweet. All right. My next term mm-hmm. is the inverse effort rule. Okay. And to give you a hint off the start, it is a fallacy. Okay. Inverse effort. So the less effort you give and the more success you gain is a good thing. Like my guess is when people are like, I got an 80 on this test, but I didn't even study versus I worked really hard and did better. And that's working really hard and doing better or doing as well is better than working not as hard and still doing well. That's the fallacy. The fallacy is that not working hard and being mildly successful is good or as good as working hard and being that successful. Yeah, I'd say that's, I would phrase it differently, but I think that's hitting at the main idea. Mm -hmm. I would phrase it as if you have to try at something, then you're not good at it. Okay, That's the fallacy. Yes. So for anyone listening, that's not true. (laughs) Don't believe that. (laughs) You're as smart as you'd make it, incremental theory. (laughs) Yeah, so entity theory would combine with this I would say they they reinforce each other. If you mm-hmm. think that you only have a set amount of something, yeah. if you have to work hard at something, mm-hmm. then you're like, oh, it's just because I don't have a lot of this I don't have my entity of it. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that would they would combine to encourage goals that are not particularly challenging. Mm-hmm. Because if you challenge yourself yeah. and then find that you can't do it, but you have an entity theory or yes. you ascribe to the inverse effort fallacy mm-hmm. then you would think that because i have to try to do this thing i'm just not good at it and then it's an affront to your sense of your own entity of intelligence yeah totally cool cool my final term Ooh. is mental contrasting mental contrasting is that comparing yourself to other people it is not okay <laughs> mental <laughs> contrasting Mental, within the mind, using the mind, contrasting, comparing, and seeing the differences. Using your mind to see the differences between one thing and something else. Is that vaguely close? (laughs) (laughs) That's the definition of both words. (laughs) I I would say that's vaguely close. And the contrasting is, it's a... Mental contrasting is a goal-setting strategy. Mm. I I have no idea. Mental contrast, like <laughs> using your mind to compare or comparing two minds. <laughs> you know, I go ahead. Okay. <laughs> so it's a goal-setting strategy no in point. which you contrast your goals. <laughs> you contrast your mentals. <laughs> you think positively about your ability to reach the goal, Mm -hmm. but also realistically about the challenges that you'll face in reaching the goal. So So that's the the contrast? So the contrast is a realism Mm -hmm. about the challenges that you'll face, but Mm -hmm. an optimism. So you have to be both realistic and optimistic at the same time. Yeah. And in the book, the author also distinguishes between two kinds of optimism, Mm -hmm. one being helpful and one not. Good. The, so do the helpful one. <laughs> so do the not helpful one. <laughs> and then contrast that with being realistic about picking the right kind of optimism so mentally. One, the unhelpful kind of optimism mm-hmm. is 
assuming that it won't be difficult to reach a goal. Okay. So you're like, oh, this is going to be easy. Mm. That's not particularly helpful because then when you run into challenges, it deviates from your expectation. The more helpful kind of optimism is optimism about your ability to overcome challenges Mm. and your ability to reach the goal and grow in whatever direction. So then mental contrasting is kind of like enacting one of those kinds of optimism Mm -hmm. and not enacting the other. So enacting the belief in yourself, but not enacting the belief that it will be easy. Cool. 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 Mental contrasting. There it is. Do you want to summarize? Yes. Mental contrasting is a goal-setting mechanism or strategy in which you contrast your realism about the difficulty of achieving a certain task or goal with optimism about being able to achieve it. Yeah. Cool. All right. Cool. Nice. Sick. <laughs> All right. Swart. Swart. I'm going to set some goals now. <laughs> yeah. All right. That is the end of round one. All right, it's my turn to give some words. So my theme is 20th century China. And by 20th century, I mean early 20th century, like almost even turn of the century China. Uh, Okay, noted. Okay, so 19th to 20th century China. Okay. That's my specific era. Like late 19th? Yeah. Okay. Like 1890s to 1920s. Okay, got it. My first term is slicing up the melon. Uh, just in the context of the entirety of 20th century China. Yeah, so 30 years and 400 million people. Okay, well, I'm I can going give to you some context if you'd like. I can I can guess assume, first, or you can presume. Even. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I should perhaps preface all of my guesses with the statement that I don't really know that much about turn of the 20th century China. Fair. But slicing the melon, I'm assuming, mm-hmm. is a metaphor. Yes. And to me, it <laughs> it evokes dividing something up. Mm, yes, <laughs> but dividing a lot. <laughs> yeah, so did China face any kind of military defeat at this time? Yes, a couple. <laughs> okay, so then I would, I'm not sure who they were fighting, but my guess is that slicing up the melon was the process of relinquishing land holdings to mm. the military victors that they were facing at the time. Yeah, ding. Ding, ding. Nice. So basically, it's the equivalent of the scramble for concessions is what it was called. It's okay. the equivalent of the scramble for Africa, which with which you may be familiar, which is like same time period when European colonial power has carved up Africa to be like, this is my colony. That's my colony. Mm-hmm. And the same thing happened in China. So slicing up the melon is a Chinese term that came up for, for their kind of despair at their government losing these wars and giving up concessions to these different colonial powers, Britain, France, Germany, Japan, the United States, um, who took possession of different um, areas, different pieces of infrastructure, things like that. And does this have to do with the century of humiliation? Very much. As mentioned two weeks ago. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Extraterritoriality was one of the concessions in the scramble for concessions described by Chinese... Um, you know, elites as slicing up the melon. Okay. So to summarize, mm-hmm. slicing up the melon is the term... Did you say it was used by elites? Yes. Okay. So used by elites 
bemoaning, understandably, yeah. Yeah. the <laughs> division or the concessions of land mm-hmm. to colonizing powers after China lost in sort of multiple yeah, military conflicts. Yes. All right. Next. So this one is, and I'll give you some context for this one, because it relates to 20th century China, but in kind of an oblique way. Okay. Temporal simultaneity. Okay. So this is a term created by a, a, a social or cultural theorist about the press. Okay. And what that does. Okay. You said it was a term created by a social and cultural theorist. Yes. About the press. Yes. And the term is? Temporal simultaneity. Okay, so temporal, having to do with the passage of time, mm-hmm. simultaneity mm-hmm. occurring at the same time. Mm-hmm. So clearly something is happening at the same time, mm-hmm. and it's about the press. Mm-hmm. I have no idea. Okay. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thanks. <laughs> Do you want me to give the answer? <laughs> yes. Okay, so temporal simultaneity is the idea that the creation of a national press leads to this common understanding amongst people within a nation that things that happen in another place happen at the same time as them. Do you see what I mean? This, this is kind of shared understanding of the passage of time. When you have a national press, like this big event happened to you as it happened to me at the same time. It's like, it's like um, watching a terrorist attack on the news or something. It's happening at the same time all around the world. And being able to everyone watch it on CNN means that we can all experience it at the same time. There's a temporal simultaneity to the event. I see. Whereas prior to a national press, you wouldn't have that. You would have people sort of in the epicenter of whatever large occurrence. Yeah. Those people know first. And then if it's a big enough deal, then news gradually makes its way yeah, to exactly. increasingly distant mm-hmm. places. So, okay. so this is something that contributed to a sense of Chinese nationalism, having mm-hmm. a national press that, that would foster this mutual understanding of a shared timeline, a shared perspective of events. All right. Mm-hmm. Cool. Chinese history. Right. So to summarize, yes. temporal simultaneity is a result of the establishment of a national press mm-hmm. where people who are both proximal and distal to some large event Mm -hmm. can experience it at the same time yes because the press reports on it at a nationwide level yes exactly all right cool 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 all right my last term is speaking bitterness okay Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's like an activity a political activity speaking bitterness Mm -hmm. as a political activity what are other things that one could consider political activities um like being in congress that's very like that's a very like institutionally political but like a socially political so like this is a time period of a lot of revolutionary upheaval and cultural like the the cultural becomes very political at this point so criticizing or um, saying good things about something cultural is a political act because, you know, when a, either the past is good or the past is bad based on what our institutions are today. You know what I mean? Okay. So speaking bitterness in the context of this cultural, political meshing. Yes. Melia. <laughs> As they say. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, <laughs> speaking, communicating, mm-hmm. bitterness trying to think what one would have to be bitter about mm-hmm. at this time yeah is it the entrance into 
public discourse or interpersonal discourse of cultural criticisms, like it becoming acceptable to criticize aspects of the culture that are seen as oppressive? Kind of, yeah. Okay. Do you want me to... Yeah, just so flesh that out. <laughs> basically, it's a large part of the communists coming to power mm-hmm. is publicly denouncing the old ways and that speaking bitterness. So like this old, like back when we had feudalism or back when we had capitalism, even if those things were very active at the time of when you're complaining, mm-hmm. it's a political act to say things are better now. Okay. So like foot binding or like how family life existed or how economic life existed, complaining about that is an act of speaking bitterness. And it's a political act because what you're doing is bolstering the regime's legitimacy. Right. And you have to do it on an interpersonal level because these are people speaking to each other, kind of asserting their public claim to being like good citizens kind of. Right. You know what I mean? Like signaling? Yeah, it's exactly like that. Yeah, it's signaling. Okay. Signaling that you're pro-communist because the communists are coming into power? They're they're in power at this that point of speaking bitterness. Okay. But they're also coming to – I mean, this is uh, – you know, it's a, a blurred period of political control. Okay. So to summarize, speaking bitterness is a way of signaling your support of a current regime yeah. by complaining about facets of the society under previous governments. Yeah, exactly. Publicly. Or interpersonally. Yes. All right, cool. So that is the end of round two. All right. For scoring, shall we do it out of five? Yes. All right. Do you have your scores? I do. All right. I'll go first. For Entity Theory of Intelligence, I Mm. gave you four out of five. Oh, thank you. For Inverse Effort Rule, I gave you five out of five. Oh, thank you. And for Mental Contrasting, I gave you two out of five. Oh, that's sweet. (laughs) (laughs) All right. For Slicing Up the Melon, I gave you five out of five. For Temporal Simultaneity, I gave you one out of five. And for Speaking Bitterness, I gave you three out of five. (laughs) All right. Cool. So yours comes to 11 out of 15. Yours comes to 9 out of 15. All right. Cool, cool, cool. Great. That brings us to the end. Yes, it does. Of this round. Mm-hmm. And whole episode. Yes, it does. <laughs> that as well. If you want to learn more about goal setting, mm-hmm. all of my terms came from a book called Succeed, subtitle How We Can Reach Our Goals by Heidi Grant Halverson. I'm reading it for one of my classes. I'm, I'm, I enjoyed it. Cool. And by I'm reading it, I mean I read it. I read it <laughs> I thoroughly read it for one of my classes. I enjoyed it. Would recommend. And you can hear about all my terms by coming to my class, 20th Century China, with Professor Jeremy Tai. <laughs> A for Effort is hosted and produced by me, Mairead. And me, Harry. And it's edited by me, Mairead. Our music is Chop Shop Instrumental by White Flowers, and our logo is by Eights. If you like the show, subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. If you want to get in contact with us, you can email aforeffortcast at gmail.com with questions or comments or just to say hi. We read all of them. <laughs> Even the junk mail. All of the junk mail. <laughs> and we're on Facebook at A4Effort. So, you know, just, just type that into the search bar. And it'll we'll come there. up. That'll be us. Yeah. So head on over there for some interim goofing around. And otherwise, we'll be back in two weeks. Bye. Bye.
you want to summarize? Yes, the entity theory of intelligence posits that there is a set amount. Do you want to summarize with slightly more excitement? <laughs> <laughs>